I should start by saying why I chose this title. And it was basically to get me off the hook. And since I was asked to give a lecture, I, would like to have, I thought I would like to lecture on some aspect of the history of sport. I wasn't quite sure what it would be or what I would be capable of doing. So I thought, if I set this title, Can Historians Write the History of Sport for the Lecture? It doesn't commit me to anything in particular. The answer, of course, is that historians can write the history of sport and have done so. In fact, one of the most, one of the most distinguished historians of sport is an alumnus of this college, who is here tonight, in fact. And for me to say that historians couldn't write uh, the history of sport would in this institution be very improper and I think actually rather unwise. So the answer is yes, historians can write the history of sport and have done so. Uh, there are indeed many historians who have done so, but I, do I, do I think there are problems, but I don't think the task is in any way insuperable. Until the end of the 19th century, this would not have been a useful question. But by the 1880s, contemporaries became aware of the transformation of what was thought to be play or games into something else, particularly those who had some knowledge of Great Britain where all this started. The first person I have come across who actually asked the question, what turns a game into sport, was a German philosopher sociologist, and he did so in the 1890s. What he thought turned a game or play into sport was what he called training, coaching, discipline, and rules. And he noted the entry into German, even then in the 1890s, of English words like trainer and coach, since German had no equivalent. The effect of all this, uh, he said, was, for instance, to turn football, which he understood to be a kind of folk play, a folk gang play, into what he called a storming game of struggle. And this, as far as he was concerned, illustrated the transformation. Contemporaries were also aware that this transformation of play or games into sport was accompanied by profound social and economic changes, which began in Great Britain, like sport, but moved elsewhere at different rates until it became almost a universal phenomenon. Furthermore, it seemed to be happening very fast, especially in Great Britain itself. I was very struck looking at the 1901 and the 1910 editions of Heinemann's Encyclopedia of Sport, which is a wonderful compendium, uh, on what the editor said when he came to do the 1910 edition. The editor was Lord Suffolk, and he noted the differences between 1901, when he first produced the book, and 1910. One of the differences is that the encyclopedia was now very much larger because all sorts of new sports had come in, into play, as one might say. Uh, for him, sport was not just football and cricket, but it was now auto racing, aeronautics, motorcycle racing, as well as traditional things like hunting and fishing. All these, even hunting and fishing, he believed, had been transformed by rules individual and national competition by emulation, and he placed a great deal of emphasis upon private individual and national competition and on emulation as characteristics of modern sport. He also, as you can see by aeronautics, motorcycle racing, and so on, 
believed that technological advance underlay much of the development of sport. In his mind, games had become sports in a modern sense. Now, I think we can, we can see in a way what Lord Suffolk meant, but there do remain problems of definition of how he conceived sport. I think most of us would not conceive of hunting and fishing as being the same kind of activity as cricket or football, however much they became organized and rule-bound. So before the Second World War, there were a few bold attempts to try to give some kind of de definition of sport, what we might call an essentialist definition, which covered the whole thing, which included everything we might legitimately call sport, and what distinguishes it from what went before. The first, and in many ways the most famous attempt to do this, <coughs> was by the Dutch historian Hartzinger, who's better known as, uh, as a medieval historian. And he published in 1938 a famous book called Homo Ludens. And in this, Hartzinger argued that until the late 18th century or thereabouts, the play element had infused European culture, really right from early medieval times to the 18th century. And it was this play element which actually determined the way most of us lived our lives. He thought, on the other hand, that sport, organized sport, the sport that he saw in the late 19th and 20th century, did not include this play element. And it was actually a very bad thing um, because he, he believed it had destroyed uh, this culturally infusing play. It's not actually a good book. Uh, his famous contemporary, Peter Heil, thought it should never have been written at all. And the reason for that is that when it came out in German in 1944, uh, a book which argued that Nazism and those who were fighting against Nazism were really not different from each other and merely expressions of what had gone wrong in the 20th century, that book was not likely to go down very well, and it didn't. One of those who tried to, what we might call, save Halsinger was the French polymath Roger Caillois, who's referred to in William's blurb about these lectures as saying correctly, historians had nothing to offer in the history of sport. Kaiwa was critical of Halsinger, and as I say, all historians, and actually all sociologists, I have to add, and he suggested that attempted distinctions between play and sport were unhistorical or futile or both. For him, it was a problem of classification. He subsumed modern sport within a wider category of games. And these games could be classified according to levels of competition, uh, as to whether they were individual or whether they were collective, or whether in one of his nicest classifications, whether they were vertiginous, whether you kind of turned yourself into spinning top. And this, these classifications, I think, had the advantage of abolishing what he thought were artificial distinctions between play and sport and thus abolishing also uh, wasted, uh, time wasted on attempts to find these distinctions. But it's a curiously asocial book in a way. I mean, a lot of the things that historians are properly interested in, like uh, who goes to sports, who funds them, who pays them, who plays them, who trains them, uh, are spectators the same as those who participate. <clears throat> Virtually none of that at all is in Roger Kaiwa's book. The third, I think probably the third most significant attempt before the Second World War in its late 30s 
came from Norbert Elias, uh, and then by, later on by his colleagues at Leicester. Uh, they saw modern sport as part of what was described as a civilizing process, whereby the world became more rule-bound and less violent, much less violent, uh, and the function of sport was to provide excitement and tension within societies where violence and tension was now severely policed. I think they regarded this kind of tension as necessary in human life. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be removed, but it had to be made safe. And modern sport was a way of making it safe, providing tension, one that leading to mass murder. These were pioneers at a time when the historical and sociological literature on sport was comparatively meager. When Dick Holt, the alumnus of St. John's, wrote his book on France in, in 1983, he noted how little historical writing was available to him. And Eric Dunning, a sociologist uh, from Leicester, noted the same thing about sociology about three years later. In the last 30 years, however, there has been a huge addition to the sociological literature in sport, and history is not being far behind. This has involved research not just into sports daily life, I mean, it's, it's institutions, who played it, who watched it, and why they did so, but the incorporation of sociological and historical interpretations of sport into existing historical sociological schools. With us now have Marxist and neo-Marxist interpretations, Weberian and neo-Weberian interpretations, figurationist interpretations, which is largely those supporters of Elias, Durkheim and Durkheimian interpretations, neo, feminist and post-feminist interpretations, biological, physiological interpretations. Now, I think all of these schools say something important about sport. All of them suggest useful ways of thinking about sport. But I would nonetheless argue that the conceptual problems remain. Anyone working on the history and or sociology of sport is aware that sport as such is hard to study to devise a definition of sport that includes within a single argument all the characteristics of all those activities which we might call sport. And I think also everybody who writes about sport is aware, and enough people have said this, that sport tends to be seen as an example of something else. So we might write about sport and violence, sport and class, sport and gender, sport and social mobility, sport and capitalism, sport and socialism, uh, and uh, sport and the state, etc. It's also difficult to know, for instance, whether the excitement of sport is the same as for spectators as it is for players, and whether we should write, in writing the history of sport or the sociology of sport, whether we should write one form for players and another form for spectators. And that's actually a very difficult question to answer or a very difficult thing to do. Some have argued that sport is intellectually and artistically creative, which is something I believe myself, but we have no accepted way of measuring that. And the closest you get really is to argue that let's say uh, football is related to dancing and ballet. They're all part of the same genre. And that in a way gives you some kind of purchase on the argument. But that's not a view I think that everybody would accept by any means. There are equal problems with the sociology of sport. It 
tends to be based upon a kind of contemporary history which changes very fast. What purport to be kind of universal rules actually look really rather dated. And much of the sociological literature of the 1990s, eight, uh, 1990s already seems dated. I came across, when I was preparing this, some general propositions I argued myself in around about 2000. Uh, one was that the British state would now never invest any money, significant amounts of money in sport. The other one was that Britain would no longer win many gold medals at the Olympic Games. And the third was that Britain would never host another Olympic Games. <laughs> and you can see that all of those propositions are very, very wrong. But that's what it looked like in about 1999 and 2000. So, you know, writing, his, writing history of, of this form, uh, there are many pitfalls, and that's one of the ones you can, you can fall down. Equally, the huge literature on football violence, and it, it's immense, and often actually, actually extremely interesting, as a general or universal fact of British life, reaches its peak when the phenomenon was largely disappearing. And it hasn't disappeared entirely, but it has very largely gone away. This is not necessarily a bad thing in a sense. Um, what these rather dated general theories turn into are historical explanations for historical facts. That there, were very, very, there was bad uh, football viol uh, hooliganism, for example, in British football in the 1960s, 1970s, early 1980s, and we need to explain why that happened. And the data and the arguments adopted by sociologists, let's say, who worked on this, do seem to me to now turn into historical arguments were actually very useful for the historian. What I don't think they're all that good at is presenting, as I say, universal or general rules about the nature of British life and British culture, because that's just too transient. I'm inclined to think myself that attempts to define exactly what sport is, is in practice pretty futile, other than the pur purposes of everyday use, when you just say, he likes sport, they play sport. And the problem can be seen in a way in Lord Suffolk's definition. By some criteria, everything he includes in sport is indeed in sport. But by other criteria, it's a bit difficult to see how they all get there. In a way, doing it the way that historians have tended to do it, which one might call sport and, might be the most productive. And today, I would like to look at one of those sports and in the hope that it might tell us how far sport can be studied analytically. And my sport and today is sport and religion. Both in ordinary speech, sport is the religion of the working class, sport is the religion of North America and so on, we use it, we use it very frequently. And is also used in a more technical usage, that there are aspects of the way people play and follow sport that appear to be uh, religious. Of all sports, especially football, soccer football, is commonly thought to have all the qualities of what you might call religion. It is transcendent, or for many of the people who are there, it appears to be a transcendent experience when they go. Like mass or communion, it usually happens once a week. The team and its players are often endowed with supernatural powers. It is unreal in the sense that it's removed from every, the reality of everyday life it turns life in, on, onto a different plane, however briefly that happens. It is not part of reality. And that seems to me one of the characteristics of religion. 
It has, as Eric Dunning himself uh, put it, a religious or quasi-religious significance, and the intense excitement created by sport forms the basis of the widespread view of sport as sacred. Modern football, I think probably more than any other sport, though I'm not quite sure why this should be true, is unquestionably the sport which makes emotional demands, extreme emotional demands, on its supporters and evokes very strong emotional responses. In part, of course, it depends on what we take to be religion. I mean, it would be very pointless for the historian to start out trying to define sport and failing, and then trying to define religion and failing to do something on sport and religion. So I'm inclined to take the common sense view that, that you know it when you see it, um, that you know sport when you see it, and you know religion when you see it, and that gets you out of a lot of troubles. Um, <clears throat> it's a sport also, football, which to many people, and I think this is historically demonstrable actually, seems easily to connote a kind of tragic sense of life. Tragic, yeah, tragic sense of loss, I'm sorry, which I've, I've not seen in, in, other, in other sports. And I would like to look today at four examples where this certainly prima facie occurred and compare them with similar events which did not involve or uh, evoke what we might call a religious response. The four examples, one is Italian, two are British, partly because Britain has had more disasters than anybody else, which tells you a lot about the British state, and one German. The first one I'd like to look at uh, occurred on the 4th of May 1949 and involved what was then Italy's greatest football side, uh, Torino. Uh, returning from a match in Portugal, the plane they are on crashed into a, a big hill, sort of quasi-mountain, above Turin the Superga, uh, because they lost vision. Uh, except for the two people who never went to Lisbon, all members of the Turin football side were killed. Not only was it Turin's most successful side, it constituted virtually the whole of the national, Italian national side as well. So in footballing terms, this really was a major disaster. The news had a profound effect throughout Italy, even in the south, astonishingly. In Turin, everything closed, including the Fiat Works, which is the home of the hated Juventus, they had one minute silence. Parliament in Rome was suspended. The funerals on the 6th of May were effectively state funerals, I mean, colossal affairs, and explicitly Roman Catholic. There were immense crowds. I mean, there are attempts to judge quite how many people there were. I think that's pointless. But saying hundreds of thousands, a very substantial purport, uh, proportion of the Torinese population would be fair to say that. All the vocabulary of religion was immediately adopted pilgrimages which still occur. The dead were always described and still are as caduti, the fallen. They were all martyrs. And they became embedded in Turin's traditions. And that was all the more necessary since after 1949, the club went into a terrible decline, which it's only sort of bit by bit got out of and then collapsed again. So the dead of 1949, uh, provide a, a kind of tragedy to Turin, which its supporters believe it gives it a superior virtue. For example, Turin was described to me as being a faithful club, whereas Juventus was fickle. And that's a very important distinction. And the fidelity is a necessary part of the supporting Turin. 
There was a pilgrimage to the Superga. Uh, you can't miss the Superga, it's this big hill. And on top of it is a huge Baroque basilica, which was the, formerly the chapel of the, the kings of Piedmont. And it was into that that the plane actually crashed. In 2003, when Turin was at the bottom of its fortunes, there was a huge pilgrimage to the Superga site, which is now a bit run down. Um, and the point, in a sense, was to try to evoke uh, the strength and spirit of those who were dead to kind of renew uh, Turin's side. So that's, that's the first one, the Superga. The second one is very well known to all of you, and, and that's Manchester United and the Munich crash of February 1958. Most details will be known to you. And the reaction in Manchester, possibly in England more widely, was rather like that of Turin, though less dramatic and less collective. I mean, the funerals in Manchester tended to be individual funerals. But emotions were very, very strong, uh, as anyone who was there at the time knows. And there was, again, a kind of national resonance. There was a rapid development in Manchester United of a myth, which became very important in the club's history. And the myth was of a, a young side that was doomed. So talented, it could not be anything else but doomed. And Manchester United was almost refounded on the basis of this loss. It would not be the club it was today in England, and it would not be the club it is today internationally without that sense of loss. Ten years after the crash in 1958, Manchester United at last won the European Cup in 1968, beat Benfica. And this was thought to be a kind of sign of redemption, a tribute by the living to the fallen. The intervening ten years of comparative failure were simply passed over. Now, if I can work this, I would <laughs> like to show you some religious views of Manchester United via an image. Right, now we need this one. Yep, okay. This, as you will, I hope, observe, is not painted in Manchester, but is Piero della Francesca's uh, painting of the Resurrection, painted in the 1460s, very famous painting. And you will notice that Christ, as he's coming out of the tomb, the Christ, he's not exactly a bruiser, but he's tough. And he's not at all namby-pamby, as he usually appears in Christian iconography. And you'll see Christ coming out of the tomb and the sleeping, sleeping centurions from the biblical story at the base. So keep that in mind. Thank you. Right. This now hangs at Old Trafford in the Manchester United uh, Museum. And it's called either The Art of the Game or simply Eric Cantona. It's not an exact copy uh, of the Piero, but it's pretty much meant to be. And you'll notice that Cantona comes out not holding a cross, but is actually holding the St. George's uh, banner. But he looks tough. He does look a bruiser. And underneath it, you'll, you'll see uh, David Beckham there, uh, the Neville brothers. Um, Paul Scholes, I think, is up there and Nicky Butt is there, and the guardian angel is St. Alex Ferguson. Um, now that, this painting is meant absolutely seriously. Um, the painter Michael Brown uh, clearly regarded it and regards it as a kind of religious offering to Manchester United. And it was painted at the moment when Cantona was, <laughs> 
perhaps some of you will remember, was eliminated from football for a few months because of some bad behaviour. And this is his resurrection. And the resurrection, when it comes uh, at Manchester United, was enormously popular, tremendously popular. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of Manchester United. Can you this one is more extraordinary. This is David Beckham, though it doesn't look very much like him. This is in uh, one of the major Buddhist temples in Bangkok. And when the monk in charge was asked why David Beckham was put there, he said very simply, and with kind of irrefutable logic, uh, that religion, football is a religion, and we ought to recognize the, that person who was admired by so many millions of people. Uh, it's a religion and therefore should go into a temple. And again, that is, <laughs> that is meant very seriously. It's not meant as a joke, as some of the others are. So anyway, there are a couple of aspects of the religion of Manchester United, which I thought would kind of cheer you all up. Uh, uh, right. The third uh, uh, thing I want to talk about, again, is very familiar to all of you, um, and that's Hillsborough. If one wanted a subject for what you might call sport and, the abandoned FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest is absolutely ideal. You could write about sport and money, sport and its supporters, and of course sport and religion, sport and the state, sport and the police, particularly sport and the police, sport and its administrators. All of those things are perfectly possible as individual subjects for you to, to work on, and which many people already have. The unusual thing about Hillsborough is, say, in the, in the case of Munich or the Superga disaster, they were events that were over and then were kind of used. But the history of Hillsborough has never finished. It seems extraordinary that new inquests are beginning last month, 25 years after uh, the original uh, tragedy. And that it has gone on for so long, I think, is important in establishing it as a kind of new founding myth for Liverpool as has the burning sense of injustice, which was so strong uh, on Merseyside. And that continues. Uh, the popular reaction and emotional response to Hillsborough was possibly without precedent in modern Britain. And it's hard to disagree with Ian Taylor, who described the reaction to Hillsborough as, and I quote, nothing if not a mass popular religious right, largely without parallel to my knowledge in Britain this century. And those words were written actually before the death of Princess Diana. That would certainly no longer be true. It's important to note that originally uh, the reaction was spontaneous. The decision to open Anfield on the Sunday following the, 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 the disaster was a response to the numbers who had come already and were leaving various uh, iconographic things around Hilt, Anfield. A local radio station had then reported that people were going to Anfield but not, not much more was, was said. The inside and the outside, there was then a mass held in the Roman Catholic cathedral, inside the cathedral, outside the cathedral. And they also rather hurried response to clearly what was sort of popular demand. I mean, there were thousands of people milling around uh, the cathedral of Christ the King. How many people came to Anfield <coughs> the following week? Uh, nobody knows. Uh, it's thought about 100,000 people came a day and that over that week 
the figure of a million doesn't seem to be uh, an unfair one. And that excludes the number of people who also went to Hillsborough and Sheffield. The decision, the famous decision really, to build a line of scarves, Everton, Liverpool, Everton, Liverpool, between Anfield and Goodison Park, which are actually very close to each other, was that of two local taxi drivers who then teed it up with the police to block off a dual carriageway so people could get across. And again, they, this, this was purely spontaneous. Like Munich, Hillsborough has become central to the view Liverpool Football Club and its supporters have of themselves. If you go to the uh, Liverpool Football Club Museum, I mean, like actually, like Old, Tra uh, Old Trafford, it's, it's central to the story that you, you are faced with. Um, any official or quasi-official of Liverpool Football Club, uh, Hillsborough is central. And it remains central, and I think it will always be central now, to Liverpool Football Club. I was struck by the fact that on the 25th anniversary, the now manager of Liverpool, Brendan Rodgers, gave his, his team, both before the match and at half-time, kind of pep talk about how they must be up to uh, the demands placed upon them by Hillsborough, and to use some of the language used uh, by the, uh, the Hillsborough Committee, the Justice Committee. Uh, it, it's very much incorporated. The names of those who died are on red marble on either side of the Shankly Gates, and there's a permanent flame lit there, and it looks nothing else like than, than a war memorial. I mean, that's, that's really what it looks like, and in a sense, I think that's what it is. It's a war memorial. Uh, and it's difficult to regard that as, in some senses, uh, a religious uh, response. The fourth uh, episode I'd like to talk about is, is German, <coughs> and that was November 2009, uh, with the funeral of Robert Enke. Enke was Germany's off and on senior goalie, but in effect senior goalie, and also the senior goalie for Hanover 96 Football Club. He suffered from severe depression, and it just got too much for him in, in November 2009, and he threw himself under a train. The reaction to his death actually surprised Germans, and some later re regretted the emotions, which his biographer, Ronald Reng, described as bordering on hysteria. There's no doubt that the first part of the funeral, which was held in Hanover 96's stadium in Hanover, was intensely emotional, extremely emotional. It was both like and unlike Hillsborough. I mean, there was a certain familiarity. The club had been founded in 1896, as the date implies, by the British community and by Germans who had studied in, in Britain. It was founded as the Hanover Football and Rugby Club, uh, though there's no evidence that rugby was ever played. And that name, rugby, was dropped just before the First World War. Like AC Milan and FC Genoa in Italy, it still carries on some of the British traditions. The scarf, the Hanover 96 scarf, says Hanover since 1896 in English. Around the stadium were exactly the same flowers, scarves, jerseys, teddy bears. The same prominence was given to children as one had at, at, at Hillsborough, and a lot of prominence to a notice, a big sign held by a little boy, uh, called Robert, saying, Robert, you will always be in my heart from your little friend Marcel. And I've no doubt that that was sort of parentally touched up, um, but it was actually in the circumstances rather moving. There were a significant number of young women uh, in, the, in the crowd on that day, 
and possibly, I suspect, more than you would actually see at a Hanover match. The familiarity was <coughs> with, with Britain was increased uh, almost to the, kind of not bizarre, but getting close in that direction. As the coffin was taken out from the stadium to go to the church service, everyone sang, you'll never walk alone. Um, it was taken for a specifically religious service. And it, was, it was there that an evangelical pastor in her sermon made an awkward point that though we sang, you'll never walk alone as the coffin was taken out of the stadium, in fact, Robert was alone, all alone, she said, and I don't think that's really what wanted, anybody wanted to hear. So the occasion was, was familiar, but it was also more somber, more formal, and, and in some ways more official. The German state, both federal and provincial, was very well represented, and the former chancellor, Schroeder, who had been minister-president of Lower Saxony, was there, the then minister-president of Lower Saxony, the Lord Mayor of Hanover, the president of the German Football Union, all the officials of Hanover 96, the German national side, who were on either side of the, of the coffin and, and dressed in a very sober form. Uh, and this was much more, uh, as I say, formal than you would ever get, or we did get, for the various services for, say, Gary Speed at the time of his suicide a couple of years later. The mode of address was also different. Um, every speaker began with... Dear Teresa, that's Enka's that wife, his widow. Dear Teresa, dear fans. And the occasion was more formally uh, organised. Um, it centred really in a slightly alarming way between the coffin, which is in the middle of the ground, and Teresa Enka, who was sitting to one side with some other members of the German national side. She uh, had her hair, dark hair, pulled right back. She was dressed in black and she had no, no cosmetics and was sobbing mostly throughout the ceremony. And she, she, it was, she was a rather ravaged figure uh, and you, you couldn't really take your eyes off that. Um, although very few people actually said the Lord's Prayer along with the Roman Catholic priest who said it at, on the, in the stadium. I think we simply cannot deny that the occasion was religious in the sense that we usually understand that word. And as I've said, some people in Germany thought that it had just, in a way, become too religious. But anyway, that's what happened. Um, now, I'd like to say something about <coughs> things where this didn't happen. We've got time. Although these reactions, the one before I've talked about, produced uh, uh, responses which we can legitimately call religious, such a reaction was not invariable. In the land of sporting disasters, namely Great Britain, there are a number of occasions since 1945 when the reaction was much more subdued. Uh, we can think of <coughs> the, the crushing to death of many, many fans at Burnden Park, Bolton Wanderers Ground, in 1946, at Ibox Park, the ground of Glasgow Rangers, in 1971, at Valley Parade in Bradford in 1985, after a terrible fire. Or indeed, what happened at, at Heisel in Belgium, to whose dead Liverpool Football Club until recently showed remarkable indifference. In the case of Bradford, though the number who died was fewer than at Hillsborough, the event was even more horrific. I mean, many people were uh, died of asphyxiation or crushed. Some were burnt to death. And if you're on the ground, People who, some people who escaped were actually on fire when they leapt over on, onto the pitch. 
Um, <clears throat> so the question then becomes, why Munich and Hillsborough, for example, and not Ibrox Park or Bradford? And I think that's a very difficult question for the historian to answer with much confidence. The reasons I give are not, in fact, particularly novel, although the emphasis might be different. The first conclusion is not a very helpful one, I admit, is that there might be an accidental element to all this. Sometimes people react in what we might call religious ways. In other cases, they don't. It's, as I say, not very helpful, I agree, but probably true. One of the strangest things I've seen, an example of this, is in, indeed uh, on the occasion of the Bradford City fire, there were a number of teenagers who were just leaping up and down in front of the cameras, sort of waving their arms and saying, hello, mum, in that way, while behind them this, this absolutely appalling inferno was taking place. And you do wonder, what on earth were they thinking? And I have no idea what they were thinking. Um, but th that, that kind of response, I think, is actually difficult to explain. But it happens. The second thing is it depends very much on context. In the case of Turin and Liverpool, there was a specifically religious Roman Catholic context, though in the case of Liverpool, not just Catholic. The way Turin chose to mourn and commemorate is very Piedmontese, and very Piedmontese Catholic. A uh, very good example of the, this kind of mourning you can find in, the, in Turin in the double church of the Madonna della Consolato, which is the first time I actually ever saw the iconography of Superga, in the drawing in the church of a plane crashing in uh, to, the, to the Superga. Um, and that, that is uh, very characteristic of the way in which people in, in Piedmont respond to disasters of that kind. Furthermore, the funerals of Il Grande Torino, the team, were all heavily ecclesiastical. I mean, the church was very, very prominent. The Catholicism of Liverpool Football Club is, of course, a historian's cliché. But the fact that Liverpool was, the most, was still the most Roman Catholic of Britain's cities is important. I mean, it permitted a form of public mourning and grief, still absent, I think, from the Protestant tradition. And it was surely one of the reasons why what happened after the I Ibrox Park disaster in 1971 was different. Rangers then was still officially and very, very uh, determinedly a Protestant club, um, as were its supporters. It, uh, contempt for the Catholic Church, for Catholic mummery, was in Rangers' blood. And some people at the time thought that the reaction was so muted that it's clear that Northern Europeans simply can't mourn in the way that everybody else would. I don't think that's altogether true now. It seems to me clear that there has been in Britain and then in Northern Europe, I think Britain sort of came first, a secular change in mourning practices. There was, after all, in 1997, a funeral that had all the characteristics of Hillsborough and Hanover, but absolutely in spades, and that was Princess Diana's. It was also specifically religious, but its former religious character, I think, was independent of how people reacted to her death. I thought at the time that, uh, in many respects, reaction to Diana's death was influenced by what happened at Anfield uh, <clears throat> eight or nine years before. I still think that to some extent, but it's also clear, I think, that there has been a change in the way people believe they should grieve. And in these circumstances, there will be copying. Robert Enker's funeral, despite some obvious German characteristics, was clearly influenced by British examples. The third uh, thing one might say is of the four cases here, 
None were national and all were football. The grief was for local teams and local heroes. And I think the expression of such emotions on a national level is much more difficult. And someone like Princess Diana was probably one of the few people who could evoke it. Furthermore, although Liverpool and Manchester United tended to use the disasters as founding myths, they were already famous clubs. In John King's uh, novel, Football Factory, which is about a Chelsea football hooligan, I mean, he, he could be worse, but not much worse, he actually says at one point, Old Trafford's a smart ground, and when they write about Manchester United being a great club, you know deep down they're right. And then he adds rather ambiguously, going to places like Old Trafford and Anfield gives you an extra kick, um, which is probably exactly what happened. But it is a recognition that there was something about Old Trafford and Anfield which you don't get elsewhere. So that Bolton was a club, uh, in, I'm sorry, that both of them had large emotional resources to draw on. And that was not true of Bradford uh, City Football Club. I think there might be one other explanation for why there was so little mourning in Bradford after this event. And it's possible that the fire was actually too horrific to be accommodated in any form of mourning. And that might count for the, the curious indifference displayed by those teenage boys uh, in front of what was happening. But mourning practices in Britain then were much more restrained. There is now, as Mike McGuinness has noted, hardly a grounded football ground in Britain without some kind of memorial. And after much pressure from supporters, uh, even Ibrox now has a memorial to those who died in 1971. And given that <laughs> the last few years' Rangers' story scarcely differs from that of Torino's decline, the memorial might be asked to perform the same function as the one at the Superga. I'm inclined to agree that those who, with those who argue that amongst sports, only football can command such loyalty and grief, though, as I say, I'm not quite sure why. <clears throat> I largely agree with Ian Taylor, who argued that, quote, had Hillsborough not been a football tragedy, the weekly and fortnightly cycles of public and communal mourning could not have developed on Merseyside so unambiguously. It might be that it is because many people play and support football than any of the other great sports. Um, and also, uh, and it's also possible, as I suggested to you a bit earlier, that some people see in football a kind of tragic view. The American sociologist and historian Alan Gutman noted that if you look at American literature, sporting literature, particularly about baseball, much of it is optimistic and comedic. Whereas if you look at European literature about, uh, about sport, much of it is tragic and of the kind of loneliness of the long distance runner kind of view. And I think there might be something to that. Nor does the morning always go beyond the local. The behavior of fans from other clubs many of whom, for instance, believe that Manchester United illegitimately exploits Munich, is often not respectful. There was a local derby in Turin a couple of weeks ago between Turin and Juventus, and I think you can say the behaviour of the Juventus supporters was also not, not respectful. People are also capable of satirising religious impulses, and the last image, if we can... Um, This <coughs> is done by two brothers, the two Sikh brothers, the Singhs, and you'll probably be able to see <coughs> that the god Shiva is actually David Beckham, and the goddess Pavita is Posh Spice, 
and the little god Ganesh is Brooklyn. Uh, <clears throat> they're on a throne supported by, on tabloids, and you can't see it very clearly, but most of the tabloids are OK in Hello! magazine. And you'll see above, gold coins are absolutely pouring down them, uh, and people are bringing various kinds of presents to them. Um, now, this is clearly meant, though they denied it, this is clearly meant to be satirical, and I can't see how you can use it in any other way. But it is also meant to be a kind of a satirical attack on the notion that football, particularly, is necessarily religious and necessarily divine. So some people can, clearly can escape the notion of football as, re as religion. Um, and that's about the best example of it I can see. Uh, right, here we go. Now, <clears throat> there's no doubt there's an element of, of exploitation in all this, particularly in clubs like Manchester and Liverpool. Uh, but it would be wrong to say, I think, that it's pure manipulation, since the emotions being exploited were genuine ones. But nonetheless, it's clear that in the history and tradition of these clubs, as officially presented, the disaster is central to the story, as I've suggested to you earlier. And that becomes absolutely clear when you go to the club museums. And I think the, the notion of disaster puts an extra weight on supporters. It keeps them faithful, when they, like Turin, Things have not gone well, and fidelity is very important. One final point about this, which I regard as a bit of a minefield, but I thought I'd better mention it, are these occasions masculine religious rites. Certainly for many young men, this is as close to religious experience as they are likely to get. But it is rather a minefield. If one looks at <coughs> the four, four uh, examples I've given you, women were certainly, and young women, are very present probably more than you would see at a football match, and all were armed with scarves, jerseys, etc. Uh, it de partly depends, I think, why you think women have traditionally absented themselves from football. But um, my, I'm inclined to think that on this particular occasion, uh, football isn't entirely gender-bound as it often otherwise is. Well, final thing, a general conclusion. What general conclusion might we reach? Uh, somewhat to my surprise, I think I have concluded that writing a history of sport as sport as or sport and, which historians often regret, is the best and perhaps the only way of doing it. Attempts to write essentialist histories of sport are not exactly futile, but will be disappointing. To study, study sport as play gives us only some answers. Likewise, to study sport as physiological excitement only gives us some answers. Likewise, sport as religion. These can never be complete. They themselves really also are sports as or sport and. I think the problem in a way is that sport is so entrenched in modern society at so many levels and is so shaped by society in so many different ways that the rather sensible approach to the writing of the sports history adopted by most historians is probably the correct one. So I would disagree with Jeff Hill who argues that academic studies of sport depreciate the play element, and overemphasize economic, social, and political factors. As long as the play element is not excluded, that we do recognize that sport is ludic, indeed it is difficult to imagine a sport that has no play element, and that there can be variations in response, like the boys at Valley Parade, it is hard to see how else the history of sport can be written. Thank you. <coughs>